0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Bianca, did you ever feel like because you're an art historian, you don't get to hate on art? Oh, Gianna, absolutely. Unfortunately, because lots of people get to casually say that they don't like art, or they hate art, or they're not into this. I never get to say that because I feel like I have to keep art on its pedestal and keep making sure that people actually like it because I need a job.
1: (laughs) I actually feel sometimes feel like we get to intellectually hate on art and we get to keep up with the snobbery of it all. Do you ever feel like you can't hate on art or even if you do, it is still keeping up with the elitism and snobbery in the field? Yes. Well, sis, you are all in luck because today we are talking about all the art we love to hate
0: because sometimes we just need to rant about the things that are just not it. We'll be thinking about some questions like, why aren't we allowed to say that we don't like a work of art? What are the benefits of art historical critique? And how could art education benefit from embracing some hating on art? So, Gianna, are you ready to art pop rant today? I love a good
1: rant. I am
0: ready. <laughs> Let's get into it. Hey, Gianna, you have been a little busy bee <laughs> this past weekend. I've been bothering Gianna so much. I feel so bad. You She's have just been not bopping me... around, and I'm I'm texting her like, um, I know you're like moving apartments and you know getting your life together, but what about the podcast? <laughs>
1: No, you have not. Bianca's been holding down the fort this week. <laughs> I, guys, I'm so sorry, but I have not been this physically and <laughs> mentally tired since I did, like, my BFA thesis. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I also did a little float trip on Lake, Ili- not Lake Illinois, uh, the Illinois River, And Mm -hmm. that was really fun, but my body is sunburned. I lived on a third floor apartment complex and then was moving to a different unit on the third floor. So also my calves have not been this sore since I was a little (laughs) brat seventh grader playing tennis. Like, oh my gosh, they are. Get those calves in shape. My calves are weak. (laughs) My body is (laughs) red um that's really funny so yeah i'm here and i'm ready for this art pop talk i love a good rant i feel like i'm in a very ranty mood since my body is just not it
0: right now as well
1: so my emotional state really fits the vibe of this episode
0: good well i'm i'm so glad to hear it Something that's been on my mind just really quick before we get into art news is I needed to talk to you about Ever After. Did you see the TikTok
1: I sent you for the matching Ever After tattoos?
0: Yes, and it made me cry. I, Anna, feel I like literally we get cried. Them. But
1: the thing is, I know you're gonna make me get like the horse mask. <laughs> you're gonna get like, eh, I'm gonna get the peacock one and I'm gonna be the fucking
0: horse mask. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm absolutely Marguerite.
1: I'm the girl over at the banquet eating the goddamn
0: carrots. Jacqueline. <laughs> Jacqueline. Oh,
1: I only came here for the food. I did only come here for the food.
0: Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Well, last week, Gianna and I in the recording process, Gianna was trying to say the word contest, but it kept just like it's just one of those times where you're reading something and it's just like a, the flow never comes no, out right. I think it was and so it was
1: plural, like contests.
0: <laughs> right. And so then when Gianna kept saying it over and over, I thought she was saying contest, or that's just what I was hearing. And all I could think of was Drew Barrymore saying contest Nicole de Lancre, because that's the only other time in my life I've ever heard anyone use the word contest. Mm. And so. Then this weekend, I watched Ever After, and it is such a good movie. It is such a good movie, and I remember when we were little, I was obsessed with that part where she comes in and, like, her angel wings, and she's like, just breathe, and I was obsessed with it. And it's also, you know, a little arty because Leonardo da Vinci is, like, a main character (laughs) of the movie. And, of of course, our queen – angelica houston is just uh, she is everything this is this is i don't know i think it may be my favorite role of hers i also She's just
1: feel like unreal angelica houston like i i have always thought that mom looks like angelica houston they have one thousand percent roman beautiful like arched nose and they have the, the same high two, cheek bones, high cheekbones same complexion same same. complexion and like we're both like evil steps long sisters, black hair yeah i don't know so i just i feel like we that movie is a vibe.
0: I feel like Adrian definitely is Cinderella. Oh, yeah. Or no, Danielle. We're the worst. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I definitely, I'm definitely no, okay like, with being Marguerite.
1: Yeah, yeah I get that. Because at least I'm a little bit nice to her. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying I'm not nice? I mean, I'm not saying you're not not nice. I'm just saying, like, you didn't come I just, here for I the just food. Feel you like... had ulterior motives, Bianca.
0: Oh, 1,000%. I'm here for the prince. I love Prince Henry.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, you're sponsorship thirsty over here. Oh,
0: yeah, for sure.
1: And I'm really the just brooch, here for The time. drama.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the bees. The bees. There was a bee. There was a bee. Yeah. So I just wanted to tell everyone that if you haven't seen Ever After, I just needed to talk about it a little because revisiting it this weekend was quite excellent. Mm-hmm. I cried. I was bawling my eyes out at the end.
1: Yeah. And it's then a yeah, good one.
0: it's so good. Oh my gosh.
1: Okay, well let us everyone know let us know what you think about getting some Ever After matching tiny tattoos because Oh yeah. That could be very cute.
0: Yeah. The peacock. The you
1: should honestly nice. just get a B. And be like, there was a B. B for Bianca, and then I could just be like, I only came here for the food. I've always wanted to get. You could get the tattoo. carrot. Yeah. <laughs> the you could get a B, and I could get a carrot. Oh my God. Oh, Fucking A. I
0: On think- the tiny tattoo note. Yeah. Are we ready for some art news? Indeed. All right, before we get into art news for today, I just wanted to offer a trigger warning for police brutality. Last week, the Museum of Contemporary Art Cleveland announced a quote, dynamic new board of directors and a more inclusive. board leadership model this came in response to the what media outlets are calling quote-unquote controversy surrounding the museum last summer when the museum canceled a show titled quote the breath of empty space the exhibition was a showcase of drawings by the new york artist sean leonardo that depicted white police officers fatally harming black and latino men and youths among them eric garner freddie gray and walter scott for some background on leonardo who identifies as an afro-latino artist um, art 21 states that quote through drawing performance and public participatory workshops Leonardo explores the constraints of masculinity and the ways that systems of oppression and violence have crafted and contorted societal expectations of black and brown bodies. So the show at Mocha Cleveland was originally meant to open in March of 2020, but clearly March is when the pandemic emerged and amongst that and the week of george floyd's murder the director of the museum at the time canceled the show and i think that term canceling is pertinent which gianna and i will get into here in a second so it's also important to note that the museum canceled the show without consulting the artist he said quote leonardo after grave mishandling of communication regarding the exhibition Institutional white fragility led to an act of censorship. Since its cancellation in Cleveland, Leonardo's show has been hosted at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art and the Bronx Museum of the Arts. And in early 2020, before the pandemic, it was on view at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. Changes to MoCA's board were then recommended by the museum's governance committee and were unanimously approved. Now the museum has three newly named co-presidents, Audra T. Jones, Joanne R. Cohen, and Stefan Sockney, presiding over a diverse committee. Audra is MOCA's first African-American board co-president, and Stefan is the first LGBTQ board co-president. Each incoming co-president will serve a two-year term, and all the articles that I was reading also like made a point to add that the outgoing president Larry Oscar is quote hailed by the institution as an accomplished visionary. This trustee will remain on the board. So I just I thought that was I'm weird very to
1: apprehensive me. of the word hailed. I do not like that word.
0: Me neither. It makes it made me feel icky. It's aggressive. I don't know. Yes, I think so, too. The museum said in a statement, quote, As a nation, we are in a time that demands more from museums, artists, and collaborative spaces beyond being agile, proactive about inclusion, and purveyors of interactive experiences. <laughs> um, this, is the, this is the word that bothers me. <laughs> Wait. Contemporary. Museums must answer the call to represent the ideas and (laughs) the ideas and creators of our time fully. Our cohort of new directors represents skills that enhance our overall governance and best of all, they represent a diversity of professional insight. So Gianna, Uh... what are your thoughts on the new board and this move from MoCA Cleveland? I have a hot take. So
1: this art news story is something that we keep covering, right? This keeps happening. Shows get canceled instead of working to better the institution. And also that museum statement of also putting the artists in there that our nation demands more from artists. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like you're, you're mixing them into the situation, which is really... Your, your institution's fault which especially when you didn't consult the artist about canceling their own exhibition so right. that leaves a bad taste in my mouth we keep seeing this happen there's a call from the community to have a more diverse staff and that is absolutely accurate However, I feel as though what we don't always talk about in the issue with this, because we don't live in a perfect world. And obviously, if we did live in a perfect world, then this wouldn't have to be an issue. But I really, really wish that we would start talking about the tokenism of it all. Mm-hmm. And I really hate that we have to cherry pick people underrepresented people to have on these boards and only hire them because they are either gay or a person of color. Because unfortunately, that is how we have a call and we have a need for those people and they are long overdue to be in those spaces. So what other way are we having to go around it? But it is so freaking frustrating, the tokenism of it all. And those people should be in those spaces because they are meant to be there, not because we cherry pick them. And it's, It's just frustrating. So I'm tired of reading these museum statements about how, you know, they're working to have a more inclusive and persevering experience and staff. When, no, you are having to cherry pick people because now you have pressure from your community to do so because you have not put people in those spaces that should have already been there. So instead of this bullshit statement, why don't you just tell us exactly what you're doing? I'm really sick of it because there are also people like... In the aftermath of that whole process, and and you know, and, and picking those people, it, just even when you think of an interview process that are affected by that, so you're com- you're already pushing out like a certain you know population of people in order to cherry pick people. Again, that's what we need. That's a call from our community, and we do not live in a perfect world. But I wish that we would just be more honest about the the things that we're demanding and the responses that we're getting back from these institutions.
0: Yeah, I completely see what you're saying. And it's interesting that you say that because I was just listening to the Hysteria podcast yesterday and they were talking about how I think New York may have its first woman governor with the Cuomo situation. But the host, Aaron Ryan, was saying this is just so frustrating because I'm really, I, of course I'd be excited for, for that to happen, but mm-hmm. how many times is a woman put in a position because a man failed. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just frustrating. And that's also kind of um part it reminds me that's not it's not exactly what you're talking about but the glass cliff mm-hmm. situation where women are put in positions of, you know, being a CEO or in charge of a company when the company isn't doing well and then if they don't succeed it's oh just because she was a woman and then they'll bring in, you know, a man. Whenever something goes wrong. No,
1: I think it's very much wrapped in that. And the other effed thing is that we are having these people come in to basically clean up all the aftermath of this shit, and then we're using them also for their otherness
0: continually. Right. So that that is the thing that pisses me off because I was thinking about going back to that word canceled. They canceled the show, and earlier I. We'll have to find what episode and link it for you guys. But we talked about a show at, I think it was Baltimore, that was canceled and it was the same type of situation. It was canceled because the white people at the museum didn't actually care about putting in the work. They just didn't want to do the work and that's basically what it came down to. And they came out with all these like bullshit examples of like why this wasn't an appropriate time and things like that. It's like, no, no. You're just all a group of white people who, who don't want to hire people of color, who aren't interested in putting in the work, who aren't interested in reaching out to diverse community members, diverse artists. Like, it's just, it's so frustrating. And I feel, so this is actually kind of something that happened at my work in the fall of 2020, we were supposed to open a show with Care Walker and Moses Williams and then a Horace Pippin show. And we these shows have been in the works for a very long time, but they weren't canceled. Thankfully, they were able to be postponed and they're now opening this fall. And sometimes whenever there are traveling exhibitions or the works don't come from a permanent collection museums plan these shows so far in advance you know these are these things are scheduled like five years out so unfortunately with the pandemic it has rattled a lot of museum exhibition schedules but everyone is in the same boat so this isn't one of those situations where it was canceled just because of the pandemic because the doors weren't open they canceled it because they didn't want to put in the work mm-hmm. and i think that's that's the core of the issue and then to be a contemporary art museum. They say they say this line: Contemporary museums must answer the call to represent the ideas and creators of our time. Yeah, no shit. I don't, I don't know. Like that's what a contemporary museum has has always done. I'm like, glad why you understand you... what the
1: definition is of your own institution.
0: But right, Like why? I'm sorry, but like why are you like feeding this line to us as if it's like a new mission that they have? Like you. You are built on the idea that most of your artists are living artists. Like, isn't that part of your, I don't know, contracts, your paperwork, your programming? Like, was was Sean Leonardo, like, not going to come at all to the show? Like, were there, what, what kind of involvement was happening here? It just is so strange to me that they would put this sentence in and then treat it as if it was, like, a new idea. <laughs> and then on top of that, it's like okay not just contemporary museums but you're talking about you know as a nation we are demanding more from our museums like yeah yeah we we this should be happening in in every facet of our life and contemporary museums are not the only museums who should honor that there are lots of museums and galleries that aren't just strictly contemporary but that You know, I'm talking with family members, talking with the people who were actually impacted by the artwork that's being created. Like, I just saw this um, uh, Sunday morning episode where they, the Met had, like, this Alice Neal exhibition, but they had, like, Alice's son and I think his wife, so Alice's daughter-in-law. And that was so cool. And they came to the show and they were on Sunday morning. But, like, just thinking about the people who are, like art is a lived contemporary experience. I think that maybe that's the point that I'm trying to get at is that like art in the moment for us is contemporary. Stop treating it like it's the static thing that just exists on a wall. No, yeah. Because that's not it.
1: Yeah. And again, I mean, just to go back to the statement holistically, I would just like a transparent statement that suggests I have brought these people in and it's not because I just am bringing them in to put up on a pedestal and have them work on shows and re-explain their trauma and their oppression to us constantly. Instead, I would like a statement that represents why we brought these people in and why I won't just stand on the sidelines and let these people come a- come in and clean up my own fucking mess. Yep. Yep. So once an art news story, always an art news story. Oh, that's depressing. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I missed bumming you guys out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, should we take a little break? Yeah, take a breather. Take a breather. If you're listening, grab a glass of wine because we're gonna come back and we're just gonna like rant some more. (laughs)
1: Listen to Bianca's advice, and I have only been drinking coffee because my Brita filter is currently in my other apartment, so I have drank no water this morning, and that (laughs) is coming back to bite me in the ass.
0: (laughs) That is not good. Drink water.
1: (laughs) When Bianca and I were figuring out what we wanted to talk about today, we were laughing so hard in our Google Doc, because that is where everything goes
0: down. That's where the tea happens. (laughs) and it'll be funny because like I'll be working in the Google Doc and then Gianna will start working in it and then like we'll just type with each other and for some reason it's more fun than just like texting with you it's like yeah what, I, what are you gonna type what <laughs> I'm like watching you think. I know.
1: um so it was really funny when we came to the same conclusion about artistic movement, movements like we really didn't even talk about it prior again they just happened in the Google Docs and we were like oh yeah also like this is not it <laughs> Uh, So our thinking of this topic happened to revolve around war and how it dramatically impacted and created new art movements in response. And although this is terribly, terribly fascinating and is a must-know when looking at art historical canon, it's also just not my favorite thing to talk about. Like, war sucks and it's not fun. And I don't like how that has... Impacted things like it's not a fun part of history. Like, I know there are people that are like really into war, and you know, they'll watch like you know, PBS documentaries about it all the time. He loved
0: the Civil War, he loved the Civil War. (laughs)
1: Like, not terrible. Um, also, we were already on the same page about hating on Cubism all the time on the pod, as I know you guys are. So, we believe you guys get the picture with that done yeah we don't need to hate on
0: it because we hate on it like every episode so we
1: get it um so I think we're gonna spice things up today with the things that we love to hate on
0: yeah it was it was really funny watching this all come together because I think that there are a lot of things that we could hate on but for some reason our initial responses were just like these these items and then when we looked at it as a whole timeline i was like mm, there's something there's something up with with this here and i think it's because people were dying <laughs> so <laughs> we we <laughs> we made a tiktok about this and we put it on our instagram and we were asking you guys what other types of art that you also hate on or you know just don't like and it's okay not to like it which we're going to get into so i just want to read some of your responses okay cubism that was definitely quite popular (laughs) amongst the art pop tarts (laughs) i have to give a shout out to culture quota because oh my god i just i just love her Her tiktoks just make me cackle so much i love them we got a few pop art uh this person said pop art especially andy warhol i said what i said (laughs) I, res- I, respect I respect it, it. no mad respect. i respect it and then this person said pop art as well but it might be more about me disliking a lot of the nostalgia stuff that people use pop art for now which yes. is, which is what i love about pop art actually and they said um a lot of it was meant to be satire about consumers and Im- and culture but i see it now used as this like quote unquote oh the 60s were better and i it's funny that this person says they don't like that about art when i love that exact thing about pop culture because i just when i think about andy warhol just like smirking and laughing down at all of us for doing exactly what he thought we would do it just something about that makes me so happy but i
1: i understand it's it's when we talk about this uncomfortable consumption of like problematic artwork or how there's this mass consumption of it and it's misrepresent misrepresented in its consumption and so when you're on this other side of the spectrum and then you know all these other people are you know on the bandwagon and have collectively decided that this is how they want to appropriate art now it's like cringy yeah i get that yeah Uh, yeah yeah yeah
0: but i love it and that's what i love (laughs) about it okay so this person said giacometti i will not elaborate (laughs) And i just thought you you never have Ooh. to elaborate for the, that this? answer that is that is the perfect answer
1: i don't know i kind of want this art pop-tart to slide into my dms and tell me how they feel about tim burton
0: i do not like tim burton. i do not like I'm tim burton either it, and it's you did
1: tim burton was inspired by giacometti's figures so it makes sense it's scary
0: they are terrifying i i just i don't they like so them skinny know, I know it's like, it's like they're little like stick figures but scary <laughs> how can you make a stick figure scary anyway we got uh some pointillism which I thought was interesting impressionism Richard Sarah Bauhaus I agree oh with that Richard one. Sarah
1: sisters yeah
0: yeah um oh I just saw a new one what oh my gosh this one hurts this one does hurt this person says mine's marina abramovich is the artist is present oh i think no. it's trite not that it isn't art oh i respect it i respect it it's okay not to like it but that one that, that one, one cuts hurts me she's my that one, that one hurts i'm always hyping up marina i'm like do you know the artist is present <laughs> 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 gotta watch that documentary Oh, that one hurts. Ooh, that's mm-hmm. tough. That's tough to move on from. But it's I love hearing what you guys have to say. I think it's so fascinating and like it just shows that like there's all this shit out in the world and like we're just meant to hype it up all the time. But like I've never heard someone say that they don't like Marina or that, you know, they don't like pointillism. I was a little I was a little shocked by the pointillism. I was like, "Okay, let's go." So, I wanted to think about why, not, like talking about things we don't like can be useful or why we felt like this would make a good topic. And speaking of more things we don't like, I I need to go off for a second on Gilmore Girls because I, I just watched the show. I've never seen it before.
1: Really? <gasps> that show sucks. And yet I watched the whole thing like twice.
0: twice
1: yeah because you know you watch it like once and then when i go through all the classic shows then i just have it on in the background like a second time you know so
0: that's the thing i was looking for which i i need another one because i'm home in my apartment by myself i like to have just something on in the background like when i'm working at my desk i i like to just have some noise around me because i'm working from home all day and i just need some sounds so I was like, you know what I'm gonna try I'm gonna try Gilmore girls. We've never seen it before. Supposedly it's like this iconic show. I, I I don't know how this show made it through seven seasons. I'm sorry, but so I, I have a, like a theory about this show and and as I'm watching it, the the plot of the show is not about the Gilmore girls. It isn't is, that's, that's a subplot. The main plot of the show is about two fully grown women who don't know how to cook. And the whole point of the show is that they don't know how to cook, which lends them to the other places that they go to. So because they can't cook, they go to Luke's. Because they can't cook, they have Friday night dinner. Because they can't cook, Lorelai has a relationship with Suki. Because they can't cook... You know, Rory gets this, like, privileged-ass life where she, like, flies across the world with this guy, and he's always feeding her fancy dinners. Like, it's just, it is mind-blowing to me that the whole premise of the show is every, every single episode. Anyway, I'm moving on, but all that is to say that in this episode of Gilmore Girls, Lorelai and Christopher receive a Kiki Smith work they receive this Kiki Smith and it's like this wolf girl, you know, print from Kiki and they hate it and it's like the joke is that this is like a terrible piece of art and like the viewers are supposed to know that they don't like it, but the parents like Richard and Emily know that it's this like prestigious gift of of work that they are helping these young people like to build up their art collection. So I was thinking about that in tandem with this topic because when Lorelai and Christopher had this reaction to where they they hate this piece of art, they like this really cannot stand it. I was like, stop, stop hating on it. It's Kiki Smith, you know. <laughs> and then I was like, Bianca, like take a step back. Like you are kind of like inherently, I think we we in the art world are like built into this kind of like snobbish praise of art it's okay not to like every single piece of art but I was feeling like I don't know like there was like this tension between my want to give the people who didn't like the piece of art you know justice in their feelings but then there was this other part of me that wanted to explain to them why this piece of art was so great even though I myself don't like every piece of art so I was wondering what are the ways in which we can have a productive conversation about why we don't like a piece of art because I feel like when adults say they don't like this piece of art it's kind of like blown off and it's just like it's you know they know that art is not for them or they could never be part of the art world or the art people are snobs or like Mm -hmm. we don't want to be associated with this kind of like elitist knowledge. But actually, I want to have that conversation about why you don't like it. And let's talk about that to use it in kind of making art accessible.
1: Yeah, well, from a museum education perspective, that's very, very important. I think if I am talking to a group of people in a gallery or museum space, you know, leading a tour, for example, I will ask them, you know maybe even just as a recap question okay what was your favorite thing in this space or what did you not or not like about it like what piece maybe like didn't you like didn't connect with because Mm -hmm. that's okay you don't have to like any of this in here it's totally up to you Mm -hmm. you can have your own thoughts about it so when we're talking about our feelings about art i also incorporate words that have you know the other side of the spectrum of feelings your 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 dislikes why why do you want to hate on it what why aren't you connecting with it I think what gets me with the Gilmore Girls example, if I could have been in that room, you know, to be a fly on the mm. wall that could speak to them. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking for <laughs> um, Excuse me, sir? <laughs> Are you there? Are you there? <laughs> um, I wouldn't go into it as, you don't even know who Kiki is, which is very hard for me to do because I put that woman up on a very, very... Like problematic pedestal for myself. <laughs> yeah. um, it's that I think the stigma with that piece, or typically her art, is because it's not necessarily aesthetically like pleasing or nice to look right. at, especially thinking of that image of the wolf girl. It's scary. I believe it's an etching, so it's a lot mm. of skinny mark-making, uh, almost looks like a pencil drawing or like a pen drawing, if you looked at it from afar. And you know, it's kind of creepy. Her work is creepy, and that's why I love it. But I think it's this this lack of education or what we think art should be. It should be this aesthetically pleasing thing, and I should have something mm-hmm. that is aesthetically pleasing, perhaps, in my home. So when mm-hmm. you get handed a piece of artwork that's this creepy wolf child thing, and you're like, what the F? Like, yeah, that might be a little off-putting. Like, ooh, I didn't expect this, and now you want me to put this in my home? But right. instead of talking about, like, why you should... You know, instantly love this, or you should know mm-hmm. who Kiki is. That's fine. Talk about what your initial reactions to it are. Why? And like dive into that. Why are your instincts that you don't like it? Because perhaps that actually might be the artist's intent. Like, Kiki is creating an off putting image to, you know, talk about the way in folklore and, and fairy tales, like women are portrayed and, and to spin mm-hmm. that into different aesthetics, which is highly interesting. So, I think those initial reactions are valid. We just need to dive into it a little deeper.
0: Right. And I feel like that's also an interesting, I don't know, combination when thinking about elitism and collecting, because to your point about hanging something in your home, I mean, I, I would of course hang a piece in my <laughs> I home. would hang Lilith on my I wall, I would hang Lilith. on the ceiling above my bed. <laughs> truly, truly. But that's just because I'm, you know, we, we are us. <laughs> but thinking about that idea of a collector owning something and, and being able to purchase something because it's prestigious and then, you know, normal people just wanting art that makes them happy, you know, I think that is such another interesting component of kind of privilege and money in the arts and what is, you know, what is building your collection and what is having something that you just enjoy. Yeah, well... So,
1: I mean, honestly, Bianca, that's quite interesting to think about. You know, the plot between Lorelai leaving her, you know, rich, privileged family, that piece is very interesting, the way that the writers chose that because there is a... A, a deeper thing happening with the relationships between the families and how you know right. Loreline and Rory, Rory are supposed to be these like unprestigious people you know living their like cool girl life in the small
0: town like they yeah. they don't care about these
1: other things
0: right yeah and that that makes me mad I don't know what it is but it's like the the imbalance of the two families really just like I'm I I don't well, like well and I
1: could get into like the whole like denying your privilege thing in the show that really oh, bothers oh gosh me,
0: but... Un- unreal but I was thinking about like as a museum educator you know I-, I feel like not liking art is more encouraged at a younger age when students kind of feel like they-, they have more ease to saying how they truly feel about a work of art but then when you're an adult and you're really kind of playing into these like learned cultural social dynamics it goes back to that idea that like we're not like not liking something is the equivalent of oh you just don't get it right like, if you don't like it you just don't get it and right. in the art world I feel like it's like kind of like this idea of like when a when a boy or you know like every woman has gone through this but when a boy says like oh you just didn't get my joke and you're mm-hmm. like no I get it I just don't think it's funny mm-hmm. so I, I like think that's another kind of valid thing I want to bring into adult conversations and adult museum education is like I understand this piece I just don't like it yeah we don't I think people in the arts don't give enough credit to people learning about arts who actually understand this but they just don't like it and that's perfectly fine yeah so yeah Okay, so now we're going to move through a few examples, and when we initially came up with this idea, the first thing that actually came to my mind before all of the kind of war discussion was actually American landscape painting. And for me, it's, you know, Uh, there there are ties to kind of war and destruction and and obviously as we'll get into it recalls this imagery of like manifest destiny and stolen land and bringing destruction to peoples and their cultures in general i i just don't love landscapes i really strictly visually speaking they bore me to tears give me a seascape a good still life you know a genre painting but I cannot stand to look at just like a plain-ass landscape. They they don't appeal to me at all. I, again, I understand that they take skill and talent and oftentimes, you know, training. I understand that. And I understand that they are beautiful works of art a lot of the time, but I just don't like them. <laughs> so something important to remember about this conversation is that we're not shaming anyone else who likes these things. And and that's exactly the point that Gianna and I don't want to keep doing is us kind of saying like, oh, you, you just don't get it. It's like, no, I get it. I just don't like it. <laughs> um, and I wanted to also bring in, if you're interested, there's a lot of crossover here with our um, kind of Chromatica episode about kind of thinking about things that other people don't like and how you can feel so much passion for something but when other people say they don't like it it does kind of like bring you down a little and then our interview with Yannicka Starfields where he really plays into the idea of landscape in his work and in that conversation I kind of tell him like usually I don't like landscapes but through your work I found like such a different appreciation for it so just those two episodes if you're interested For me, in general, landscapes have been taught uh, with themes congeneric to American identity in particular. And for those of us living in the United States, we are very easily exposed to this type of landscape painting. And of course, there are different schools of painting, different styles, different artists. But I have my most strong feelings towards the Hudson River School and the work of Thomas Cole and his cohorts. Landscape emerged as a genre in American painting during the 19th century, and it is often said that Cole is the "quote unquote" true founder of the American landscape tradition. And I have um, I have to read this quote from a Met article on this school because it literally started with "quote the Hudson River School was America's first true artistic fraternity." Blech. Its name was coined to identify a group of New York City-based landscape painters that emerged about 1850 under the influence of the English immigré Thomas Cole and flourished until the time of the centennial. So basically, the school was made up of artists like Frederick Edwin Church, Albert Bierstadt, Asher B. Durand. um, And this was not an actual school, but just a group of those artists working in a similar location on a similar theme. Durand published a series of letters on landscape painting which codified the standard of idealized naturalism that marked the school's production and these letters are actually now available in the form of a book which you can get anywhere you buy your books but you know i was looking for like a kind of an overall synopsis on the themes and i learned that durand wrote a monthly column in a publication called the crayon in which he advised artists in the ways of landscape painting and answered you know readers questions and an interesting excerpt comes from where Durand answers a reader's question about how to best understand and portray the elements of a landscape, and Durand's response is as follows, quote, "'Dear sir, I refer you to nature early, that you may receive your first impression of beauty and sublimity unmingled with the superstitions of art, for art has its superstitions as well as religion.' that you may learn to paint with intelligence and sincerity, that your work shall address themselves to intelligent and sympathetic minds and spare you the mortification of ever seeing them allotted to swell the lumber of the garret and the auction room. And part of me was, like, very pleasantly surprised by this. This idea that your art can kind of supersede a manipulated value of the auction room. But then this idea that nature is for the intelligent and sympathetic minds, I feel like those minds, you know, Durand is catering that to a upper-class white man. Back to Cole. Khan Academy writes that during the 19th century, this was an expansive time that saw the elevation of landscape painting to a point of actually national pride. And ironically, Cole obviously wasn't foreign in America, but in England. And Cole's work, in tandem with this pride, found this, quote, aesthetic voice to lift the genre of landscape painting to a level that approached history painting. So this is kind of a key point. During the 18th and 19th century, large-scale historical compositions, paintings that often had this kind of instructive moral message, were actually favored by the academy and by patronage. And landscape painting, in contrast, they were often more thought to kind of imitate than innovate. And what Cole ends up doing is painting landscapes that were really not entirely about the land, but they had these kind of deeper messages. In these works, Cole uses the land as a way to say something he found important about the United States. I want to talk about one of his most famous works, and probably one that you've, you know, seen in class before, called The View from Mount Holyoke, Northampton, Massachusetts, After a Thunderstorm, or the Oxbow, from 1836. And at first, this seems like a regular old painting of the Connecticut River that someone like myself, you know, might seem bored with if you don't like landscapes. But to make matters even less appealing than they already are, when viewed through the lens of a 19th century you know, kind of political mindset. This painting is actually made worse by looking at this kind of symbolism of westward expansion. So the painting is actually literally split in half to elicit this idea of manifest destiny, where on the left or western side is this kind of like untamed, unruly, and wild landscape. And then on the right, or the eastern side, that has already been combed over by civilization. There's animals, pastures, and homes. So this, this painting, at first you're kind of looking at it, and it's just a landscape. But it's when you look deeper, it so clearly exhibits this idea of taking stolen land, or you know, stealing more land. And uh, <sighs> so it's just not—it's not my favorite. I don't love it.
1: Yeah, and it's funny the way that this painting is broken up literally in two sections. On the left, you read it as uncivilized, and then the right, you read it as civilized.
0: The funny thing... And even that terminology is is so, so gross. It's
1: gross, but if we're putting it in terms of this whole Manifest Destiny shit, and the ways in which it was wrote about and talked about historically like that's a terminology that i feel as though i must use into also bring it into a contemporary setting i also think the funny thing with landscape painting is there's always there is always a little easter egg in there there's always like a little tiny like person or like something that you're supposed to find that's maybe supposed to keep you intrigued and you know me i love a good easter egg i love a good little little nugget um but it's definitely not enough to keep me super invested and i
0: think in this one i can't remember does he paint himself yeah thomas cole does like to insert himself into his paintings i don't think i see a self-portrait in the oxbow
1: well Uh, there's like an umbrella or something there's some kind of indicator of a like a man-made element yes object yes All right, so the next thing that we're going to talk about in our discussion is, again, coming out of similar circumstances and time periods. So while we were getting into the script, clearly this is a very rant-like style, and Bianca and I have a lot of thoughts on a lot of things. So I was going to talk about German Expressionism, which was coming out of early 20th century and emphasized the artist's inner feelings or ideas over replicating reality and also starting to critique power, government structure, things like that. We have the Blue Rider movement, which the only Mm -hmm. artist that highlight. is truly Kandinsky Um, everything else is it's very like blocky gestural Mm -hmm. Um, something about it that I just don't really like the symbolism with the horse is supposed to you know talk about power but also freedom and you have those (laughs) constructs between kind of what we were talking about a little bit kind of like organized government and also like nature and you know the will of the people perhaps Mm -hmm. Uh, but visually it's just not for me Um, so Bianca is actually going to take us into Italian futurism, which let me just tell you, this was fucking hilarious (laughs) when I, me and Bianca were just typing in our script and I was like, oh, German expressionism. Yeah, I don't like that. And also another thing I might get into another day is Russian constructivism. If you've ever taken a graphic design class, you've probably talked about Russian constructivism. (laughs) And it's really funny it's a funny thing in art history also when you talk about projects or historical projects works of architecture that actually did not exist they're just projects that were supposed to come to fruition and they didn't but for some reason it's still such a big deal that we have to talk about things that literally don't exist and it's (laughs) fascinating but it's stupid (laughs) and when Bianca was talking about Italian futurism you might think that that might be something we're on board with um, and it's interesting, but I think visually speaking, maybe it's just not for us.
0: Yes. So I'm going to talk about Italian futurism. And it does kind of pain me a little bit to talk about this because as Italians, we have that Italian pride. And, you know, it's just we have created, I say we, <laughs> like I'm, <laughs>
1: I'm totally,
0: you know, like we, we. have effectively have made so much beautiful art you know over the centuries and i'm just gonna say futurists we we missed the mark on this one big time so
1: <laughs> so taken one for the team on this Taken, it, it's good one to one hate, for the team. hate 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 on us a little bit in this episode too yeah we have a t- you a know like experience.
0: we oh true <laughs> we're being so humble right now we are so humble really hating on ourselves and um it's it's all gonna be fine so italian futurism was started by a man named filippo tommaso marinetti in 1909 that year marinetti published his futurist manifesto love a good manifesto I don't. where <laughs> he basically threw a fit about all the things having to do with cultural tradition. And this is passatismo in Italian. Now, you might be thinking like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like sometimes, you know, especially when we're thinking about our current cultural climate here in the States, we're like, ooh, tradition is bad, you know? Like it's good to kind of shake things up. Let's think about progress. Let's think about futurism. Let's think about this like infrastructure bill, you know? But however, this... This was not exactly what Marinetti was, you know, proposing. Um, This loser was actually calling for the destruction of museums, libraries, and feminism. And whatever, I'm not surprised that a man said he doesn't like feminism but like the museum part i think is like the most ironic for me considering that the only time i see italian futurist art is like now in museums and it's just canonized like in our western art history no, books, i just feel you like know? this
1: is a classic example of a man being i'm gonna do something like totally outside the norm and like i i'm not in in
0: with you know the just you wait okay just you wait because it is so funny that they think how outside the box they are and like they are the most in the box anyone could ever be futurism was marked by traits like technological advancement movement speed industrial development youth and basically things that were just exciting to like white men with anger problems Mm -hmm. futurists made a conscious effort to pull away from all things tradition however (laughs) they thought that painting was still the medium of choice for them. There's a little bit of sculpture thrown in there, but like it's mostly painting, okay? And the painting (gasps) highly reflects cubism. Wow. Okay, here's the thing. They were interested in experimental use of color and the optic of play. Like, hello, Impressionism. For someone
1: who wanted to burn down libraries, you sure as hell took a definition out of a book for what cubism (laughs) is.
0: (laughs) So then in the fall of 1911, Marinetti and the Futurist Painters visited the Salon d'Automne in Paris and saw cubism in person for the first time. And cubism had an immediate impact on these Italian guys, such as Umberto Boccioni, Carlo Cara, Luigi Russolo, Gino Severini, Giacomo Bala nevertheless the futurists declared their work to be completely original and it's just you know of course it's just like some genius artist to claim that their work is original when literally nothing is because everything inspires the next thing nothing is original (sighs) a term that is often associated with this movement is dynamism which i I really like that word dynamism Mm. it's a good word which according to the Art History Babes Honest Art Dictionary, comes from the Greek word for power, dunamis. They write that, quote, the theory is that all phenomena can be explained as manifestations of force. If something is dynamic, it is constantly changing. It is the opposite of static, which means staying the same. And given that the founding idea of futurism is Basically, against all things tradition, this idea of dynamism kind of makes sense, this movement, this progress. And there are two works of art that you may be particularly familiar with to illustrate this idea. And both of them, I just like, it's like, all right, what, what's the hype for, for this one? You know, the first is Umberto Boccioni's bronze work, Unique Forms of Continuity in Space from 1913. It's a bold choice
1: for the word unique.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I'm just throwing that out
0: there. So think about, you know what this looks like? Joey wearing all of Chandler's clothes. And he's (laughs) like, I better not do any lunges. And Joey's just wearing a ton of clothing, and he's doing a lunge. That's exactly what this work looks like, except it's bronze and imagine you put like a big fan in front of joey so his clothes are kind of like blowing around yeah, like and
1: he's in the middle of his lunge
0: yes yes so <laughs> this work exemplifies the goal of futurists with man actually becoming machine itself obviously we have this kind of industrial material right it's this big kind of clunky sculpture it does kind of remind you of of a machine and clearly it does it does look like a body of sorts but it's so covered up by this kind of like bulkiness that and it, it kind of looks like he's also this figure is also wearing like a helmet maybe also for me I was reading some articles where they compared this to um Nike of Samothrace and I just have to say like do not bring my girl Nike into this situation because I think nike of Samothrace is like one of the most beautiful pieces ever created by people on the planet it is perfect but i think it's interesting in terms of material and in terms
1: of sculpture you know you're saying oh if joy was in his lunge but a oh big gust of wind was blowing his clothes away yeah that does look like Nike it does in the sense that it's it's so funny though to say with their definition of being so unique that you're you're deferring from all types of you know traditional forms of sculpture which is just really not the case like it, it you're actually really playing into that history um, clearly mm-hmm. and that's totally fine you can play into the history and critique it but, but to deny it.
0: And to, to, your, to be so your oblivious that you are working in those exact lines. Right,
1: which is, doesn't put you outside the norm. Like, that is the continuity of art history. And you're just playing into that, which is why we study Italian <laughs> futurism. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and then so, the same thing happens as you're about to bring up Bianca with Duchamp's nude descending the staircase. Duchamp is just playing and talking about the artwork that came before him.
0: Well, here's the thing: Boccione's piece is from 1913, and every time I see this work, it reminds me of Duchamp's nude descending the stairs, which <gasps> was actually presented in 1912 at the Salon des Indépendants in Paris which was rejected by the Cubists for being too futurist. Intrasant. Bianca. Intrasant. That is fascinating.
1: I, whoa.
0: I don't get I like, just think it's hilarious. I don't get
1: like stumped that much these days. But I, I mean, that little blurb that I just put out there was, you know, going back into my- intro to art history, you know, comparative analysis. And I don't know if I was taught that. Well, maybe I was. And I just maybe chose to reject that information because that's
0: super effed. It's just so funny that I and this actually this Duchamp, nude Descending the Stairs, it was on the cover of one of my art history textbooks. So I kind of like have this like weird association with this piece because it reminds me of like class. It's not the worst Duchamp Thing I've ever seen, <laughs> but it's totally based on that idea, which actually works well looking into our next piece this idea of capturing a figure in motion in a single image. So, how does a work of art capture movement in something that's still, which is what Duchamp is doing a year before this Boccioni piece, but the next work. Everyone loves this piece, and it's just like, what's the big deal? I, I'm sorry, it's just like, I don't get it. I would say that I think the narrative is a little bit more
1: cute and interesting to me than unique forms of continuity in space.
0: Yes, and out of all the futurist works of art, this one visually, I think, is it's less cubist, which is mm-hmm. interesting, and more on the lines of that kind of Duchamp and Boccioni This is Giacomo Bala's dynamism of a dog on a leash from 1912, the same year as Duchamp's nude. What we see is basically a little dash hound in the lower left corner, and then its owner walking the dog. But the owner, we only see the bottom of kind of like what I'm presuming to be a skirt and um, feet. But we get, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight kind of feet that are walking around. And then with the dog, we see what is supposed to be representative of kind of his tail wagging and his feet moving. And then we have this really delicate leash that seems to be kind of, you know, when you maybe um, when you have a sparkler, and you try to write your name and you get the kind of like leftover faded image of a letter that you've just written with your sparkler or when you're jumping rope and you can kind of see this eternal, I don't know, because it's moving so quickly, like this image of the rope still moving. It's It kind of looks like that. So the artist is, is playing with this idea of continuous movement through space over time. In particular, they're looking towards Etienne Jules Marais, whose chronophotographic time-based studies depicted the mechanics of animal and human development. In the States, I would probably compare this to something like Edward Muybridge's, um, you know, horse photos, Mm -hmm. where he's trying to capture what a horse looks like running.
1: I think maybe why I like this one more is Perhaps I'm just more interested in that history of stop motion and looking at this piece in Italian Futurism and comparing it to works of animation and stop motion. Whereas in the other work of art, it's like we're pretending that we're not taking like
0: cubist definition, Mm -hmm. you know, right out of the book. Well, that's a really interesting point, like taking away the kind of film and cinematic aspects of uh, particularly dynamism of a dog because with you know German expressionism Italian futurism there are also film history movements that are comparable to the artistic movements as well so not only are they happening in kind of fine art visual art they're also happening in cinema as well of that time so that's a really interesting point you make Gianna notice that with these two pieces i kind of did not pick out pieces that look at war and machinery there are quite a few examples where you kind of see like cannons facing toward the viewer and for me they're just so unpleasant i I didn't even want to talk about them but i want to just finish up this discussion with what happened in the, in the movement. So futurism was one of the most politicized art movements of the 20th century and it merged artistic and political agendas in order to propel change in Italy across Europe. Also, I saw that one of the artists I mentioned named his daughter Propeller because he was a futurist and interested in technology. Ew,
1: that's like Elon Musk naming his kid after an equation.
0: It really is that's yeah. Khan Academy's Smart History article reads that the futurists would hold what they called futurist evenings, where they would recite poems and display art, while also shouting politically charged rhetoric at the audience in the hope of inciting a riot. They believed that agitation and destruction would end the status quo and allow for the regeneration of a stronger, energized Italy. Woo! So, what does these, this remind you of? Oh gosh, these positions led the futurists to support the coming war, and like most of the group's members, actually the painter Boccioni, the one who did the sculpture, enlisted in the army during World War One. And after the war, the members' intense nationalism led to an alliance with Benito Mussolini and his National Fascist Party. Although futurism continued to develop, uh, you know, new areas of focus and attracted new members, the movement's strong ties to fascism, you know, became complicated to say the least. And and that includes the study of the artworks as well, because they do become so tied to to that party. Last thing I want to say maybe for another episode actually i definitely would love to do an episode on this i was reading of course i don't know why but it popped up and i was reading this article from the guggenheim and the article stated quote while predominantly effeminate the movement of italian futurism had actively female participants and then it just like drops off and it doesn't say any of the names of these active female participants like none whatsoever So because, you know, we're hating on this canonical movement today, I didn't include any of these women because, truthfully, they have never been brought up in any of my courses. I don't know anything about their work, so I would love to revisit this topic in another episode, and I'd be very curious to kind of compare these active female participants of the Italian futurist movement to this kind of, like, male-dominated, misogynistic, anti-feminist, group of artists that align themselves with a fascist party so i would love to to revisit but you know quickly because i was pissed off that the guggenheim just like, didn't give me any names to look at i wanted to to read some off and if you're interested go look at them but we'll, we'll revisit this another time so giannini sensi bice lazari regina bracci and vendetta capa who only went by her first name vendetta But big yikes here with Vendetta. She wrote essays exploring women's place in the fascist state, saying, quote, I am too free and rebellious. Um, And she told this to the futurist founder, Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, quote, I do not want to be restricted. I only want to be me which sounds nice again kind of like you know some of these ideas they sound nice progress advancement but then then she married Filippo Tommaso Marinetti and like I just I don't know about that whole situation so uh, I'd like to I'd like to explore that a little bit more but I wanted to give you some some names just quickly because why the Guggenheim felt like you know they could just drop that and not talk about it I I don't know of course they felt that way that's that's very in the norm for them
1: um yeah. you know it's funny to now talk about fascism roped into this artistic movement because you know what do feminists and cubists have in common yes yes but is it art but oh my God. is it art do they hate anna, fascism but here i hope you're listening freaking italian futurism mixing shit up oh
0: yeah oh spicy go listen to our interview with anna blake
1: Hey girl, hey. All right. Well, I really liked this episode. Um, this was fun. Yeah, I'm excited really to do fun. another
0: another one like this where you can talk about. Ger- I have a lot of thoughts about German expressionism. Yeah, I just don't really like it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just don't.
0: That's okay. It's okay not to like it. Mm. So hopefully, this was. You know, you guys thought it was productive, we definitely want to hear from you, what you think about the conversation, what is art that you don't like, and why should we keep talking about it? Should we keep talking about it? I don't know. All right, remember that you can email us with thoughts, comments, concerns, artpoptalk at gmail.com if you're listening on apple podcasts or you have apple podcasts on your phone if you wanted to go over and rate us leave us a review that would be amazing i see that most of you are listening on apple podcasts in our in our stats we are on instagram we have a facebook group we're on twitter we're on tiktok and remember to use code apt50 at hungryharvest.net for 50 percent off your first purchase of a harvest box And with that, Gianna, I think we'll talk to you on Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner and photography is by Adrian Turner.
1: And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.